At some point in our life, we've all had a feeling of being isolated, real or perceived. We might engage in our own little mental ping pong game. We toss emotions back and forth in our minds, question our decisions, relationships, possibly even our career paths. Certainly, isolation has never been more prevalent in our lives since COVID-19 forced us to withdraw from normalcy. First responders in particular can very easily slip into the cocoon of isolation while attempting to escape the mental rigors of the job. Now, make no mistake, isolationism is real. It can be life-changing and, in extreme cases, fatal. The good news is there is both hope and help to turn those dark feelings into light. As it does in practically every area of law enforcement training, the North Carolina Justice Academy has a resident expert specializing in subjects that are relevant, innovative, timely, and engaging. For this episode, it's a real privilege to once again sit down with Paul Phelan. Paul is an instructor course developer based on the Western campus in Edneyville. And as you'll hear as we proceed through this podcast, has a sincere passion and concern for first responder mental health. Paul, several episodes ago, we talked about first responders having a strong support system as a key to a successful career. Isolationism sounds quite contrary to that. So let's begin with a clinical definition. What is isolationism? Well, Kirk, first of all, thank you again for having me. Again, apparently I did a good enough job the last time to come back. I appreciate the opportunity. Isolation in and of itself is over time is a natural tendency in all first responder jobs, not just law enforcement, for the individual to become increasingly isolated. And what this involves is withdrawing, especially from people who are not first responders or not work colleagues. An individual, an officer or, or paramedic or firefighter prefers the company of, of those work colleagues. Rather be around them than other friends or other family and family-related activities. Kind of disengage, disengage, rather, from those types of individuals, and it becomes all about work. And what it practically looks like is if you have a five-day off schedule or a seven-day off schedule, you are beginning to fill those seven days with work-related events. Whether I'm working off-duty on this day, I'm teaching at the academy on this day, or you know I have honor guard or I have SWAT training or in-service, filling those days off with things work-related. Or if you do go out to, quote, disengage and get that break, it's with work colleagues primarily. So obviously, Paul, you just kind of cracked the door open on what sounds like could be a warning sign, but let's get a little bit more specific with it, if you could. What are the warning signs that a person can see in themselves and probably more likely what a friend, family member, or coworker might be on the lookout for? So I would say to Bolo for the used tos, what we call the used tos. What did you used to do that you're not doing anymore? What are you spending your off-duty time doing? Who are you spending your social activities with? Are you canceling things just to be away from people? Last-minute cancellations because you just don't feel like it. The more of your non-LEO friends that you're around, the more they don't understand. I remember going to a seafood restaurant. I remember I was a law enforcement officer in Florida for a long time, and seafood was 
was a, a staple. So we would go to the restaurant and they didn't understand why I didn't want to sit in a certain seat because it wasn't tactically sound. And once you try to explain that, some of them might be receptive. Some of them thought that was ridiculous and paranoid. Some of the things to look at, as I said, is, is just take a look at what you used to do. We used to go fishing for with these certain sets of friends and we're not doing that anymore. Or we used to go to the movies and we're not doing that anymore with this certain set of friends because they're not in the profession. What are you spending your time off doing? Are you filling that with extracurricular work activities, so to speak? You know, what what are we doing? What what are our social activities and who are they who are we doing them with? And secondly, are we shutting out our support system? Now, support system could be your family, could be your friends, could be a pastor, could be that person that you kind of go to for support to get through the things that we go through as law enforcement officers. Are we shutting them down as well? Well, it's funny you talk about that restaurant story. So to this day, I periodically will eat with cops and have gotten myself into the habit of taking the seat that isn't tactically sound so that they can have that full view of the door. And the other thing I notice about them is even with some of my retired law enforcement guys, they still eat like somebody's getting ready to take it away from them. <laughs> so I think what you're talking about are, are those habits that we get into, be it eating, recreation, social, whatever it is. If those things kind of begin to get a little wide in the turns, those are things that we need to be paying attention to. So the, the question would be, why is this dangerous? especially for first responders and maybe more so for law enforcement guys. Yeah. And to be clear, that in and of itself is not a bad thing at all. I remember last month I was teaching somewhere near Charlotte and went to dinner with two FBI agents and a homicide detective. And naturally, our discussion was not your typical dinnertime discussion. And I remember sitting there going, man, this, this feels great to have other law enforcement officers be able to share stories and confirm for me that I'm not the only one feeling the way that I feel about certain things. To hear them say what I've been thinking is kind of therapeutic, kind of reassuring. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I was also thinking, man, this is not a conversation that maybe my wife or someone outside of this profession would completely understand. But if you do it too much, if you really just isolate yourself to people in our culture, so to speak, or isolate yourself away from people in general, that helps push the burnout. Because if you're sitting there having conversations about work, and naturally those conversations are going to talk about, oh, how this is bull and that's bull, and the negative connotation begins to come out, and it increases burnout that you could already be feeling as a first responder. And also isolationism is an indicator of post-traumatic stress disorder or acute stress. It in and of itself doesn't mean that you have PTSD, but it could be one of those indicators. And the dangerous part of it is, Kirk, that humans are designed by our creator to be a social creature. We are designed, it's called the attachment theory, to be social, to, to have those connections. And increased isolation can lead to increased depression. And because of the feelings of depression, can increase those feelings of being alone. And the cycle just gets worse and worse and worse. So that's why it's dangerous, particularly for first responders. Well, I think you touched on it just a bit, and I may use the wrong word here in asking this question, but say that a person or their family doesn't catch 
or doesn't understand the warning signs? What could be, and again, I hesitate to use the word typical, so I'll just say, what could be the result if a person doesn't catch up on these signs? Right. So worst case scenario, let's start out there and then work our way backwards. The worst case scenario, these kinds of things could lead to, quite honestly, suicide or career suicide. When we start talking about isolationism, now again, isolationism in itself isn't going to lead to those things, but it, it is a additional sign to other things that are occurring, burnout, depression, post-traumatic stress, those kinds of things. We have what's called maladaptive coping skills. You know, we, we know that we're depressed, we're not feeling right, we're having issues, and so we drink it away, or we gamble it away, or we, we go out and, and find support elsewhere we shouldn't be. And we don't adapt, we don't, we don't deal with those things in a healthy way, mostly because we don't understand what's happening to us. And that could lead to making some very immature decisions, some very bad decisions in our career, and it could be career suicide, and then ultimately, unfortunately, literal suicide. I know, too, as men, we have these bad egotistical habits, and you throw law enforcement or first responder into that mix. Mm-hmm. And I think admission is a really tough thing for us to wrap our arms around. And certainly, I don't want to leave the women out of this, but I'm, you know, Obviously, I speak better for my own gender. So if I recognize that I have an issue, if I recognize one of my coworkers has an issue, what can they do? You know, if, if they if, if they want to keep their isolated problem isolated with, within their own circle of family and friends, how can someone seek help on their own? Well, ironically, I was just sitting here prior to the podcast finishing an article for Police Chief Magazine on that very topic. And there's no doubt that we have a stigma. And by the way, not only suicide, but relationship suicide as well. Those those things can take strains on families as well. But there's no doubt that there's a, a stigma when it comes to law enforcement and mental health in our country. Now, we have come a long way. I, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now, and we've come a huge, huge way um, from where we were 20 years ago. Uh, But there's still a long way to go. The tough it up mentality, the don't bring your problems to work mentality is starting to dissipate, but it's still very much so there. And the biggest key, I I know we mentioned this a couple of times in previous podcasts, but awareness is the biggest key. Being aware of what is happening to me. If you understand what's happening to you, then most law enforcement officers in, in our culture, male or female, we can come up with a plan. Oh, okay, well, this is burnout. This is, I'm starting to get isolated. I'm becoming a, quote, victim of my profession. This is what I need to change. And so self-awareness, obviously, is the first key. Secondly, I know I mentioned it earlier, but that support system must also be aware of what's going on. And one thing we like to do, and I give credit to Dr. Tina Jekyll for doing this in Florida. We're trying to spread this gospel, so to speak, up here in North Carolina. But if you can get get them at the academy or recruit level and give them the awareness they need at that level, then you're golden. And part of that includes the family, bringing the family in and then making them aware, whether it's wife, 
husband, father, grandfather, whatever, grandmother, bringing them in and say, hey, this is what is going to happen to your police officer. Be aware of these signs. And then, of course, reach out. And this is where that that's the tough part, right, because of the stigma. And that is one that, you know, we continually have to say it's okay not to be okay. We get that you are a human being in a superhuman profession with superhuman expectations. We don't expect you to be okay. We don't expect you to handle this by yourself. And one thing I'm pleased to see is I'm having that conversation more and more with the meat eaters, with SWAT operators. I spent four years on a SWAT team, and so I get the operator mindset, and I'm very pleased to say that even the meat eaters, the operators are having that same conversation, that it's okay not to be okay, and it's okay to reach out to people. And that includes your non-LEO friends if you have to reach out. Make sure the biggest piece, how can someone help themselves? And the biggest piece is take an inventory of yourself and say, okay, who am I hanging out with outside of law enforcement? What am I doing outside of law enforcement? And that was a hard pill for me to swallow. And fortunately, my wife was aware enough to point that out um, at a certain point in my career. Well, then let's take that and co-join it, if you will, on a little bit bigger scale. What can an agency offer in terms of both education and assistance? So the biggest thing an agency can do is be proactive in awareness and support. It starts from the top and management making those proactive uh, gestures for their officers to say that it's okay not to be okay. Something Anywhere from training emails or training memos to, hey, here's a list of places that you guys can reach out to. Here's a list of activities you can do on your own to to ensure your wellness. And even annual wellness checks with clinicians. Now, this is when I say annual wellness checks, we're doing that here in Henderson County at the sheriff's office. This is not a fit for duty sort of thing. This is once a year, you're going to go sit down with one of our embedded clinicians, you know, Make sure everything's tracking, everything's good, and have a nice day. You know, there's no fit for duty. There's no report back unless, of course, there's something alarming. But annual wellness checks are a good way for administrators to to be proactive on that. And what we've seen in Henderson County is obviously a few of your hard hitters are, are naturally apprehensive about it. But it has become a well-received thing. So to in a nutshell, if an administration, if an agency can be proactive in what they're doing, and in leading the charge, so to speak, on this and, and, and post those signs of isolation, post those signs of you that indicate you could become a, quote, victim of your profession, then that would be great. As we kind of begin to wind this thing down, this may be a question I probably should have asked at, at the onset instead of down here on the back end. Is there anything that can be done? And, and I know you've touched on some of these things, but I kind of want to try to put them in a little bit more of a silo. Is there anything that can be done to prevent the fallout of isolationism? I guess prevention comes with awareness. If you start to see those things and you're taking a mental inventory of yourself and what you're doing, that is the biggest key. Is just If you are noticing that these things are happening, then stop. That, that's the biggest prevention. Make, take steps to to stop that kind of you know call call that friend that you hadn't gone fishing with in quite a while and say hey what are you doing this saturday or friday or whatever go out to dinner with that with those friends that are not law enforcement tell your honor guard commander or whoever 
that you're whatever extra item you're doing for law enforcement, tell them you can't. Okay. Take that day off. Take those couple of days off. You know, that's one thing for us as law enforcement officers. The world will go on without you for that day or two. I know that's hard to accept, especially when agencies are, are short staffed as it is, but take that day off. Spend it with your family. Do something that is not related to that badge and gun for a minute. If I'm hearing what you're saying, as we talked about at the beginning, it it really kind of begins inside. It begins with me. That's correct. So we have now all had this experience because as the pandemic enters its third year, that has taken us into realms that as as individuals and human beings and family unit members that we never had a clue that we would experience. And, and basically, at least in my world, it created a social avoidance that I absolutely despised. Uh, the, the times that we were just on absolute lockdown I just thought, you know, I can't do this much more. I, I can't FaceTime, but so many times with my friends and family, I, I want to see them. I want to shake their hand. I want to hug them. How has this social avoidance affected both the, the mental and probably the physical health of first responders? So if you look at this whole thing in a whole, COVID-19 essentially caused a worldwide crisis. And when I say crisis, the definition of crisis is anything that's overwhelming and includes a loss of some sort. And I mean, and that's the basic definition. That's, that's the dumbed down clinical version of it, an overwhelming sense of loss. And we have all experienced that, a loss of normalcy, a loss of closeness to loved ones. There has been a loss for every single one of us. One of the factors of, you know, we talked in the last podcast about uh, cumulative stress in law enforcement. One of the factors of cumulative stress is constantly dealing with the unknown. And that is exactly what COVID-19 has brought us, is dealing with the unknown. Does this person that I'm putting hands on have COVID-19? What policy is going to change today? Are we wearing a mask? Or are we not wearing a mask? Should we wear three masks? Should we not wear a cloth mask? You know, what do I do with this person if they are COVID-19 and I'm having to take them to jail, but the jail won't take them? There's just so many unknowns involved that COVID-19 has exasperated. You know, and we're used to no unknowns as law enforcement officers. However, it doesn't negate the fact that those unknowns build that cumulative stress. And another factor of cumulative stress is continuous or unclear policy change. That adds on to that. And of course, COVID-19 has done that. And, and I just gave an example of that with we're wearing a mask, we're not wearing a mask, we're getting vaccinated, we're not getting vaccinated. I've got to have two boosters, three boosters. Take this person to jail if they're COVID-19 positive. Don't take them to jail if they're COVID-19 positive. And this has been occurring throughout the entire experience the last few years, along with other conflicting of information that we talked about prior to the podcast. It's dangerous if you get the shot. No, it's not. So we, it, we don't know what to believe. And all of those things added to the already exasperated stress in law enforcement adds to that bowl, so to speak, of cumulative stress. And just to, just to recap on the whole cumulative stress thing is it's not one single stressful event. It is a whole host of stressful events that we deal with in the law enforcement profession that we don't deal with that we experience, but we don't deal with it. And it has just been an exasperation on that as well. Now, just to add to that real quickly, how do we overcome that? And that is uh, make those phone calls. 
Pick up the phone and call somebody. Be a friend to them over the phone. Make plans for them when you when this thing is over. And it, it will be, at some point, a, sen- a part of normalcy. Look past the 10-10-10. Look past 10 weeks from now, 10 days from now, 10 months from now, and make those plans for that particular time. Hopefully that answers that question. It did. But speaking of time, ours is up. Paul, I want to thank you again just for what you do and more especially how you do it. It's obvious that you have a passion to make sure that things are right in the world as far as first responders and, and law enforcement are concerned. And, you know, the Justice Academy has a, a plethora of training. You know, we can teach you how to operate a speed measuring instrument. We can teach you how to drive on a cone course. And those things are, are great and they're great to have on the tool belt. But if we don't have, as I believe a line from Cool Hand Luke was, if our minds are not right, those things really don't matter. So thank you again for your time and your expertise. Thank you, Kirk. And as always, it's an honor to, to be able to do this. It is a passion of mine. I, I do still actively work the road, so I get it. My last, I guess, encouragement would be to anybody to please reach out to me or to anybody. You don't have to fight alone. And that's a great way to bring this thing to a close. Thanks again. Certainly in most professions, a healthy mental state of mind can be of utmost importance. And as you've just heard, for first responders, the focus of stable mental health has never been more important than it is right now. My thanks once again to Paul Phelan for sharing his wealth of information and continuing to share his passion for the law enforcement community. The Justice Academy is committed to providing relevant and timely training on this subject and hundreds of others. For a current listing of available classes, simply go to the Academy website at ncdoj.gov forward slash ncja. Among the tabs, you'll see training programs. One click and you'll open the myriad of class offerings from aggressive driving enforcement to verbal judo. Not quite A to Z, but you get the picture. And until our next episode of NCJA 1014, please stay safe. NCJA 1014.